For the past three years, the Science of Reading Star Awards have honored educators who are beacons of light, guiding their classrooms, schools, districts, and most importantly, students through transformations with literacy. Now join us as we honor this year's winners at a special celebration event, which will feature celebrity keynoters and past podcast guests, Mitchell Brookins. Two years ago, one of my students as a school administrator came to me on the playground and he said, Mr. Brookins, I want to be like the other kids. And I said, what do you mean? He said, Mr. Brookins, I want to learn how to read. And Malcolm Mitchell. When I scored a touchdown, they either probably put my name in a newspaper, people probably tell me good job all around town. But when I finished one book, no one ever said anything. So which one am I more likely to repeat? Find out more information and register for the 2024 Science of Reading Star Awards ceremony at amplify.com slash Star Awards celebrations. That's amplify.com slash Star Awards celebration, all one word. What if a change in classroom practice could lead to change in reading outcomes? What should reading instruction include to ensure all students have the opportunity to succeed? What does cognitive science tell us about learning to read? And why aren't those learnings applied in our classrooms? Welcome to Science of Reading, the podcast. I'm your host, Susan Lambert from Amplify Education. Join us every two weeks as we talk with Science of Reading experts to explore what it takes to transform our classrooms and develop confident and capable readers. As districts and schools are quickly responding to the COVID-19 school closures, we thought it would be important to talk with David Steiner, director of the John Hopkins Institute for Educational Policy and professor of education at John Hopkins University. In our conversation, we talk about how districts and schools are responding, challenges of remote learning, and how the federal government has recently responded. Good morning, David. Thank you so much for joining us on today's special episode. It's my pleasure. So before we get going, I'd love to ask you to talk to our listeners a bit about what your current role is and a little bit about your past work. I can't imagine that folks maybe don't know who you are, but maybe they don't. So why don't you start by sharing that? Of course, I'll make it brief. Uh, I am currently the executive director of the Johns Hopkins Institute for Education Policy. Uh, We are in our fifth year of work here at Johns Hopkins University. We work with state education leaders, district leaders, nonprofits, uh, think tanks, mayor's offices across the country on issues of education policy. Uh, We make research-based recommendations. We create tools uh, to improve student learning outcomes. Before being here at Hopkins, I served as Commissioner of Education for New York State uh, during the Race to the Top period and had the privilege of launching the funding for uh, Engage New York. Engage New York um, was the first free online uh, source of high quality curriculum and uh, has, I think, spawned a whole uh, industry, if you can put it that way, uh, of new materials, of high quality materials 
Um, and I think that that's been a very important development. I had the privilege prior to that of serving as dean of a very large school of education in New York City and directing education at the National Endowment for the Arts. So you're uh, in a really unique position to talk to us then about what's happening right now in terms of educational response to COVID-19 and sort of this, this uh, unique situation we've found ourselves in. Um, I'd just like to start by asking you in re- you know, relation to what we're having to deal with now, you know, so many schools or most schools that are out and kids at home, um, what do we know and what don't we know in the current situation? Well, it is a difficult situation for everybody. And the honest answer is that we are by necessity somewhat making this up as we go along. Yeah. Uh, if you look across the country, there are thousands of different responses from thousands of different districts um, as they think about their own capacity, as they think about the demographics of the children and families that they're working with. Uh, for many, uh, this has been a scramble. Uh, they have not traditionally used online materials, uh, and it's not a simple business. You can't simply click a switch and shift everything from face to face to online. There are serious challenges which we can talk about. I think everyone is trying um, and understandably and rightly, the very first focus has been on nutrition for underprivileged children, making sure that that meal, uh, which uh, tragically is, is one that many, many, many children depend on for their only really strong nutritious meal of the day is available and provided that has to be the first priority Um, now i think many districts are turning to the question of how they are going to teach their students yeah um that does make a lot of sense and and um many districts i've seen too uh, like you have you know highlighted the holistic response to students which is is uh just really encouraging. Yes. As it relates, though, to the like the education of their students, what are you hearing um, from either state level responses or what it means for districts specifically? I think, again, there's a, a range. I mean, let's imagine right now one end of the spectrum. Um, imagine that your students are logging in daily to a video conferencing system using something like Google Classroom uh, to access assignments uh, and content uh, that every 40 or 50 minutes, they they see a new teacher leading a new lesson in real time, providing input. Uh, Those students are able to collaborate across classrooms and grades um, that they get connected with their teachers and advisors every day. Uh, They have online faculty office hours uh, and to support all of this online work, the parents and children receive daily and and weekly lesson plans uh, that lay out the assignments, the video selections and supporting materials, including let's say eBooks and audio content for young uh, pre-readers. Now, what I've just described is actually not a fantasy. It's what um, Success Academies, a group of charter schools in New York, are making available for their thousands of students. But 
Um, that depends on enormous amounts of planning. It depends on the students having access to tablets. Uh, it, it depends on a very uh, highly detailed set of plans for instruction, a great deal of resources, practice, um, and leadership from the top of the organization. Um, at the other end, um, you have large districts with the best will in the world who are struggling. Um, New York uh, City, which has to educate over a million students of every conceivable background, um, is, is trying um, and is trying to um, equip <coughs> students with devices, remote learning devices. There's a website where families can sign up um, and obviously the students most in need are expected to get those devices um, disproportionately as they should. There is a, a website called Learn at Home, which has some packets of activity um, and digital learning tools, but there's as yet quite understandably no real effort to organize learning um, by grade or by subject, still less, of course, by um, individual classrooms. That is a huge undertaking. Um, if one looks at Los Angeles, which is, you know, one of the other very large districts, uh, they are trying to send out lessons and homework assignments via the internet. Uh, but again, many of the students don't have access to computers or tablets. Um, and for them, the district has actually made an agreement uh, with PBS um, so that those children can watch TV. Um, and PBS is linked to the district with coordinated assignments. Uh, so that the children watch the program and then do some associated work. Um, but even there, it's patchy. The, the newspapers report that some students are really just working on a few worksheets. So uh, for very large districts and for districts with underprivileged students, this is a real challenge. Yeah. What might that mean for small districts or really rural districts? Have you heard uh, anything about how they're coping with this? Yeah, again, it depends very much on the demographics, right? So if mm -hmm. you look at um, one of the very first, if not the first district um, to face this challenge, uh, North Shore, which is a relatively affluent Washington State district, um, they've been distributing laptops uh, and setting up Wi-Fi hotspots um, oh. so that in their case, you know, a middle school arts teacher can live stream a drawing class um, using paper and pencil that students have at home. Um, kindergarten teachers can read a story aloud on video um, and then upload it onto the website for students. But even there, um, in a, a district that was well organized, that really was one of the first um, because of Washington State's very high uh, coronavirus infection rate to, to actually have to do this. There were so many problems and challenges with um, special needs students that in the end, the district put a pause on the whole thing. 
they, they just hit the pause button on any teaching. Um, we can come back to what the federal government is advising districts uh, in terms of reaching those uh, special needs students later. But yeah. it is a, an important story in, in sort of saying here was a, a district that was well organized and then hit a major roadblock. And again, I, I think in the case of, of many rural districts, um, it all depends, right? What kind of access do its students have? I mean, let's again be real world. Let's imagine that you have three children at home. Uh, They're at two different schools. Um, let's say that the school is very organized and has a lot of sequenced materials. But if you have one computer and three children, they can't all be doing lessons right at the same time. Yeah. Um, and so if you, you speak to a number of school districts, what they have started with, and again, this is very rational and very sane, they've started with reading packets, right? They've been distributing hard copy materials, basically, um, to students, to families. And there, the, the challenge, of course, is that this is largely unstructured uh, work. And some students have parents who are able to help them at home. Some don't. Some parents, despite uh, the current situation, uh, must go to work. Yeah, they have no choice. Um, and if you're a child, you know, with other children at home, maybe there's an older sibling looking after you. You're staring at this sort of reading packet of materials. Not so easy uh, to motivate or structure learning. Yeah. And that's certainly not um, explicit instruction like we need no. for the youngest ones. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so what about um, some of the, we've talked a little bit about some of the challenges. What about some of the unintended consequences that are starting to emerge yeah. uh, and, and what's being surfaced? So the biggest problem here, and let's be very frank about it, is that we went into this uh, crisis with a tragic learning gap. Uh, yeah. largely between students who are underprivileged economically and those who are not. Um, most experts that we are talking to and our own research suggests, sadly, that uh, unless we are incredibly uh, well organized about this very quickly, those learning gaps will widen. Um, so if you think about it for a moment, it's not very complicated to figure out why. Um, if you are privileged or more privileged child, your family probably has multiple computers, uh, certainly uh, a number of tablets can quickly buy more if they need it. Um, your uh, more affluent district uh, with its suburban school or its high quality urban public school uh, is going to make an assumption that the online access is there, that the, uh, the access to reasonably high-speed internet is available, that every child has access to a device um, and can quite rapidly shift to an online teaching environment. In a place like the one I live in, in Baltimore, where Johns Hopkins University is located, that's fantasy land. Right, thousands and thousands of children do not have access 
to anything more than, you know, a smartphone. Mm. Uh, and it's very naive to think that uh, you can treat a smartphone the same way as you can treat a tablet. Uh, and even there, there may not be smartphones and certainly aren't in every family, uh, let alone computers at home. So uh, again, the access to instruction uh, is going to be inequitable. And of course, the experience of teachers is inequitable. Many teachers teaching in more affluent districts have already had experience with mixed modality learning. Um, they may have done work online uh, with children, whereas teachers who are teaching in a city like Baltimore or Newark or St. Louis um, or Detroit, you know, are much less likely to have that experience themselves. So this, this is a fundamental national challenge and there are no easy answers. Yeah. As an extension of that, I'm wondering what you're thinking about, like next year at this time when this is over and we're looking back on, on, on now, um, obviously we've talked about some of the concerns we have in terms of uh, equitable learning, um, increasing the, the gap, the learning gap. What would you say would be maybe some positive things that might mm -hmm. we could look back on this and say, oh, well, that was a positive unintended yes. consequence. Yes, I mean, I think um, the, the optimistic view here is that many thousands of teachers and potentially millions of children will discover that well-used online teaching can in fact be a big plus. Uh, as teachers get to work with internet resources and a number of folks are putting out uh, materials for free, we can come back to that, um, they, they will be investigating new ways of teaching and students will be experiencing new ways of learning. And probably uh, once this uh, sort of secret is out as it were, because it must be, that is teachers will have no choice but to try uh, to teach with online uh, materials as much as they can, as much as their districts encourage them to, um, they will surely find that there are very, very positive aspects to doing so. Uh, and I would expect that one of the positives that we will pull out of this is that teachers will become very thoughtful about integrating online teaching into different areas of their work. Yeah, and, and you're right. It certainly is that people in education and people outside of education are sort of really rallying together to at least ensure students have something out there yes. to look at to potentially learn. Yes, absolutely. I mean, uh, um, just to mention one, and uh, we, we have worked with them in the past, but uh, there's no financial interest here at all. Um, the Schusterman Foundation, which supports multiple educational enterprises, obviously a nonprofit foundation, has put on its website a whole series of resources. Um, many of the high quality curriculum uh, publishers have put out material for free 
Um, those include uh, some that are all green lighted on Ed Reports for some of your listeners who may not know about that. Ed Reports is another nonprofit that evaluates curriculum uh, for standards alignment and quality. Um, and many of its top graded curriculum in math and ELA are now out for free. I'll give you some examples. Uh, Zern, which is a very highly rated math curriculum, um, has over 400 hours of digital lessons wow. uh, with, with on-screen teachers and remediation support um, for free and has webinars to support teachers who are using it. A core knowledge and disclosure, I'm on their board, has a free downloadable curriculum. Obviously, Amplify uh, is working with core knowledge there. Um, and those curriculum include language arts, history, geography, and science. Uh, so um, obviously, many districts already use those materials. So that's a natural uh, for moving from a classroom, regular classroom environment to an online environment using that free material. For other districts that may not have used that material, um, it's an opportunity to see what high quality instructional materials look like um, and maybe to use them. That is also potentially a great positive uh, to come out of this. But I don't wanna be Pollyanna-ish. If you haven't worked with a, a curriculum before, suddenly doing so, particularly in a new environment, namely online, isn't going to be simple. Um, yeah. it, it's going to take time. Yeah, I was talking with uh, one of my friends who is both a former teacher, classroom teacher, and a parent trying to navigate this environment now. Yeah. And she mentioned there are so, that it's great that there's so many resources out there. Now she feels like there's too many because it's really been difficult to try to curate some of those no, that's right. And that's why I mentioned these high quality curricula. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think it depends so much on the school. If the school is really unable to provide more than, you know, a worksheet or two, then um, parents may go to these materials online. And for example, with ELA, they can find perhaps a unit around a text that their child has already looked at or begun to read, right? And and try to build from where the child is rather than just plunging them into completely unknown territory. Same with math. I mean, the advice we would give to teachers and parents is actually the same. As you shift to the online environment, start with material that's relatively familiar so mm. that families and children can become comfortable, right, with the online environment and then um, move forward sequentially using one of these strong curriculum. Mm, that's great advice, great advice. Um, as we think about our federal government's response um, and how they're supporting states and potentially district, uh, what, what's happening on that front? So the major uh, challenge here, it may sound a little technical, but I assure you it's important. Um, is that a number of districts across the country, including large ones like Philadelphia, um, initially simply didn't offer any teaching online, uh, not because they, they didn't want to, but because they were afraid of uh, contravening the uh, IDEA Act, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, 
which basically says that um, you have to be able to, if you are going to teach, you have publicly, public school students, you have to teach them all, including those who have special needs. Uh, and they were worried, understandably, that um, many children with special needs are not going to be able to access in any easy way or at all um, the online formatted uh, instructional materials we've been talking about, mm -hmm. right? Many of these children depend on human-to-human -human interaction, uh, which, of course, can't happen under the current uh, coronavirus. So what's happened is USDOE has now issued what they call a supplemental fact sheet. This was on March 21st, where they say explicitly, and I'll quote, some educators have been reluctant to provide any distance instruction because they believe that federal disability law pre presents insurmountable barriers to remote education. This is simply not true. We remind schools that they should not opt to close or decline to provide distance instruction at the expense of students to address matters pertaining to services for students with disabilities, close quote. Now, that's extremely important. It should reassure districts that while they absolutely should make a best faith effort uh, to teach all of their students, and while as USDOE, the United States Department of Education, emphasizes in their fact sheet, this may fall short of the level of instruction that used to be available to those special needs children and therefore require remediation later, a good faith effort has to be good enough. I mean, the ethics here is clear. Just because you cannot unfortunately reach every child uh, to the same degree is not a reason to teach none of them. And that's extremely important. Yeah. Um, so that, that's been the guidance as of March 21st. Hmm. That's interesting. That's, that's hot off the press then as of this yeah. weekend. Yeah. yeah. And we'll be sure to link our listeners in the show notes to that, um, right. to that fact sheet for sure. It's just, a, it's, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a new ground we're breaking here, right? Like I, I, every day I wake up and I don't even have school-aged children of my own, although I have grandchildren that are school-aged and just wonder long-term what this impact is going to be like for, for all of, all of our children here in the United right. States and, and it, the world, really. It, it is a very difficult moment. And, and as I say, the deepest problem is, is the, the digital divide is really coming home to roost. That is the, the, those who have and those who don't have uh, tablets and computers for children at home and um, Wi-Fi and, and all the rest. Yeah. Um, uh, this, this is, you know, I think, uh, again, going to your point about best case outcomes will be a wake up call um, to districts to really see that that, that inequality uh, cannot persist, at least that digital inequality. Uh, uh, as I say, New York is trying to remedy it. I know that a number of major foundations are working with industry to try to ramp up the production of inexpensive tablets. Um, part of this, of course, depends on how long this lasts, right? If we're looking at a few weeks, 
uh, that's one thing. We, we can remediate to some degree for a few weeks. Uh, it won't be perfect, but it won't be a tragic uh, opening of the gap. If we're talking the rest of the school year, that's a long time. And that is going to take enormous work in the summer and in the fall uh, to remediate, assuming that, you know, we're, we're even able to get back to it during the summer. I mean, districts may have to think about summer learning in new ways um, and remediation in new ways. Yeah. And, and there's even some talk of, are we even going to be thinking about opening schools for back to school 2020? Yes, I mean, you know, we, we none of us know um, that, that we'll, we'll have to just see. I mean, I think the optimistic view is that this will peak in the next few weeks, um, at least in the next month or two, and then begin to decline. Uh, let's keep our fingers crossed. Yeah, for sure. Well, we do appreciate you uh, jumping on with us really quickly, telling us sort of the lay of the land. And as we close, I'd love for you to sort of give your advice for leaders or practitioners at this time, what, you know, what do you think their highest priority is for them to be thinking about or helping their teachers with? Yes, I think the first is don't make uh, the ideal the enemy of the possible, right? Um, you know, knowing that not every child had access to online, many don't, Baltimore uh, public schools under the, the terrific leadership of Sonia Santelises uh, didn't say no online learning. They said, we will do the very best we can. We're going to put some stuff together, materials together for online learning. We're also going to distribute uh, those materials physically uh, for students who don't have them, even knowing that uh, there may be differential learning as a result, right? Not everyone is going to benefit uh, in the same way from the same resources. That's a fact of life. And I think we just have to be grown up about this and work as hard as we can to minimize those differences. That means getting in touch with foundations, seeking support to get, you know, uh, certain minimally adequate tablets into the most children's hands who need them as quickly as possible while you work with your teachers to think about how to do the best they can, right? So start with the possible and build. Don't, don't be the deer in headlights that says, well, we can't do anything because we can't do everything. Um, start gradually, build it up, uh, and take a sense of what's out there, um, be willing to experiment, uh, you know, try and use the high quality online free materials where you can, um, figure out where you need to use physical uh, printing uh, for students who don't have access uh, and build gradually, don't try to do everything tomorrow. Really good advice. And we just thank you again, David, for taking your time and, and especially for the work that you do every day for our for our districts and schools. Well, our thoughts really are with the district leaders who are on the front line, with the teachers, with the parents and with the children. Uh, we will get through this, but we have an enormous amount of work to do. So let's all work together and see how we can really maximize the opportunities for our worst off students. Absolutely. Thank you, David. Thank you so much.
We're so grateful to our amazing guests today and to all of you making a difference in the lives of students every single day. Be sure to check the show notes for resource links from today's podcast, and we want to hear your stories and successes. Follow us on Facebook at Science of Reading the Community, or if you're looking to help implement the science of reading, send an email to sormatters at amplify.com. Tell us what guests you think we should book or tell us about the research that really excites you. And be sure to hit the subscribe button on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, I'm Susan Lambert.